Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Teacher's Cup of Coffee. As always, we're brought to you by NPT Education. Check us out at www.npteducation.com. I'm so excited to be back. This is episode three of our focus on racism. In this episode, I'll be focusing our exploration on white fragility by Robin D'Angelo. This is our third and final time that will focus on this specific book. Um, if you haven't listened to the first two episodes on this topic, I highly recommend you start with those because I've really tried to flow us right through the entire book, White Fragility, which we'll be wrapping up today, and it will certainly make the most sense to go in the order uh, that the book actually goes in. For my next episode, next week, I'll be turning our attention to a book called Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Another amazing book, uh, very different from this book, and we'll talk more about that next week. But before we dive back into White Fragility, I just want to share some of my thoughts from the week that I've been having and the week we've all been experiencing as we continue to think this. For me, it's a new way. It's a new way to think. So first, I thought, as a white person, I have done more thinking about race and my part in systematic racism in the past three weeks than maybe in the rest of my life combined. And that's just crazy to me because I frankly consider myself someone, I, I consider myself to be someone who's kind of been pretty woke, quote unquote woke, uh, even before this most current moment in America. But just think about that. I have done more thinking about race and my part in systematic racism in the past three weeks than maybe in the rest of my life combined. That right there, it says everything about how embedded in our society this problem is. I feel like ashamed on the one hand, uh, and on the other hand, I feel like I've been set free. I'm finally seeing things in a way that I wasn't fully seeing them. And it's really been liberating to be thinking this way. It's tiring, right? It's hard, and I'll get more into that. But it is a sense of freedom that I'm feeling knowing that I'm finally seeing, thanks to this book, thanks to what's going on, thanks to other things I've been reading, thanks to a lot of stories you've shared with me and people that have reached out to me, thanks to a million different things, I am seeing this topic of racism and this problem of racism on a whole new level. But I just can't believe that I've been seeing it so wrong for so long. It's just, it's, it wows me for sure. I also know that, and this goes back to my desire that I've been talking about, where you know I've, I've said in both of the podcasts so far, I want to stop being a tourist when it comes to racism. I want to stop sort of diving in and then diving back out, which is clearly the only reason I'm allowed to do that is because of my privilege, right? We've mentioned that on the first two episodes here. You know, black people, people of color, they don't get to come and go from the thinking about racism. Whereas the system set up such that us, us white people, we can come and go if we choose. And a lot of white people never even come to it, right? But we can come and go whenever we feel like it. And so going back to not wanting to be that way anymore, I've also identified within myself that I can't let fatigue settle in. I can't let fatigue settle in and push me away from my thinking and my learning and my talking about racism. 
Because that fatigue, you know, that like, man, this is all I've been thinking about. This is all I've been reading about. That fatigue, that, that ability to walk away from this discourse and this thinking around racism. Again, it's a privilege that white people have because of our racist society. My black friends can't walk away from this. But if I wanted to, I could. I could. And my life would go on pretty, pretty much uninterrupted. So I keep thinking to myself, I can't let this happen. I need to stay focused. I need to stay thinking. I need to keep growing. I can't allow my privilege. I can't allow my fatigue to trigger my own white fragility and take a break from the moment. This is too important. And you know, we have read a lot about building racial stamina is something that whites have not needed to do. And I think that's exactly what I'm talking about is I need to continue to build my racial stamina by not taking a break from this thinking. This really, this moment needs to be, it really needs to be a beginning where a lot of white people start building the stamina I'm talking about and we don't run away from the discomfort of the discourse and we, and we make sure that we truly see the systemic racism in our society. And I sort of feel like that's my job right now and that's the job of all white people right now is to stay in the moment, stay in the thinking, get comfortable being uncomfortable and don't get lazy and retreat to comfort. Don't get lazy and let our white fragility take over because that will only continue the system as it is. So those thoughts have really been on my mind as I head into the, the, third, the, the last third of our sort of book report and reflection on white fragility. And for this one, I'm doing it just a little bit differently. First of all, I'm going to read some passages um, more than I have in the first two episodes because as you get into the end of this book and there's ideas for what to do, uh, I just can't paraphrase it good enough. I just sometimes today I'm going to need to actually read right from the book. Um, and the other thing I'm doing is I'm not just going a chapter at a time today. There's a lot of chapters left. We had so much to talk about in those first five chapters. Uh, so uh, there's a chapter called Anti-Blackness, a chapter called Racial Triggers for White People, a, a chapter called White Fragility in Action, a chapter called White Women's Tears, amongst others. And so I just kind of, what I try to do is pull from all of these chapters the most important stuff I came across. And I'm going to share that with you um, today. But for me, this has been such new content and such new thinking that to be honest with you, that if I had only read the book and not taken on this exercise of summarizing and reflecting on it here on my podcast, I'm, I'll be honest, it probably would not have had nearly the same level of impact on my thinking. It's too new. It's too deep. It, it's, it's, it's like hard to understand. You know, you have to read a lot of it twice. It's like eye-opening, but it's also, it's, frankly, it's intimidating how much I, I didn't understand things. So for those of you that are listening to this podcast and enjoying it, I, I love it. I appreciate you so much. But I also hope that if you haven't read the book, that you sh I, I think you should still read the book because I think this is such heavy material and it's so new that there needs, at least for me, there needed to be the combination of reading the book and putting together the podcast. Now I feel like I've truly internalized the learning. And I'm, I'm hoping for you it would have the same impact. I would love for this podcast to have impact on you. But if, if you feel like, oh man, I really enjoyed that, but man, I still don't fully get it. Well, then you probably need to read the book as well. And I think the two working together will help you really internalize it. Uh, that's how I'm getting a deeper understanding of it. 
and I think it would work for you too. So anyways, now into the book. One of the things D'Angelo says in the last third that really caught me is she talks about like by exploring our whiteness, and that's certainly what this book is doing. I am exploring my whiteness in a way I never had. Um, that by exploring our whiteness, we disrupt a, quote, key privilege of dominance, the ability to see oneself only as an individual, end quote. So I thought that was so important that as we explore our whiteness and what we've been socialized to be because we are white, we, we really undermine that whole American thing of we are all individuals. But that's important, according to D'Angelo. We need to remember that we are socialized human beings, not individuals free of the forces of socialization. And frankly, the ultimate socialization is often related to how we view black people. And D'Angelo says that in the mind of white people, quote, black people are the ultimate racial other, end quote. She is speaking on a macro level on this. But according to D'Angelo, Asian people, indigenous people, etc., they are not seen as different from white people as black people are. And what she, as a sociologist, proposes is that whiteness actually relies on blackness. On blackness. We needed polar opposites in order to establish whiteness as a superior, as superior. So in her opinion, whiteness pushed blackness to the very other side of the room and said whiteness is superior and blackness it, we're superior, it is not. And everything in the middle we'll figure out as we go. But we needed these polar opposites for the world and for our system to be socialized as it has been. And this sort of racial other that has been created in society leads to a lot of stuff. Um, it leads to a lot of stuff. So, for example, when, when a lot of white people, when they see images of violence against a black person, they, the first thing they think or the first thing they say is that the, the person must have done something to deserve the treatment, right? So because we have this sense of black people as other and they're the polar opposite of us and we're the superiors, then a lot of people, and it's, Again, remember, this is sociology. This is socialization. So this is not about this. It doesn't make you a bad person to be impacted by socialization. But we need to fight against it. We need to fight against it when it's wrong. And so, so many white people will think, oh, they must have done something for that to happen to them. Whereas if the same person saw a white person being unfairly treated or violence against a white person, it, it would immediately be, what's that violence? Why are they being so violent? Really interesting. And another thing she says, that this anti-blackness is what leads to so much sympathy for white people addicted to opiates, yet there's no sympathy for black people addicted to crack. And I thought that was really eye-opening as well because it's just two totally different ways to think about drugs. And you know, you always think about, I'm, I'm a huge fan of The Wire. Um, I it's my favorite show of all time, and obviously that whole show is based around the war on drugs, you know. And and then in, in the meantime, we're now having as big a drug crisis as we've ever had with opiates. But it's we don't we never say the war on opiates. We we try to build systems of support. We try to make sure people can work through it. We try to you know make it. And frankly, all of this is it? Is it because? It's a drug that a lot of white people are addicted to. And so again, this thinking, according to D'Angelo, of anti-blackness leads to this kind of 
uh, reaction by white people within society. Uh, the same thing leads to this quote-unquote white savior theme that is so often seen in Hollywood. And this is one that I have thought about a lot. This was not new to me. Um, but think about how many movies focus on at-risk or, or seemingly helpless black people who get, or people of color who get saved by these quote-unquote good white people, right? So the blind side is probably the worst one of all, and, and I agree, D'Angelo brings that up. Uh, Dangerous Minds is another one. And there's so many where you have a, a group or an individual of color and they just feel, they just seem like they're, they can't get their life together in any way, shape, or form. And in comes this white person who really cares. Um, and they become the white savior. And D'Angelo talks about how these movies are so detrimental to the cause that, it's, frankly, it's indescribable. Because they make people of color seem helpless. They make white people seem like saviors. Um, they always, and they add to the good-bad binary because... The white person that's not racist, who's saving the the person, the, the the people of color or the person of color, th then there's always some more white people in the movie that are racist that th that this white person's fighting through, and again, you got this white person in the middle that's fighting against racism and fighting to save, and just the overall movie just completely discredits um, in so many ways the black people, and you know I. This, this idea of savior, this is one that's always hit home for me. Um, I am a true believer in mentoring. You've heard me talk on the last podcast about a man who mentored me growing up, and you can see probably how much of an impact he had on my life growing up and my thinking even today, long after we've lost him. And I, I work as a mentor. I have been working in the Big Brother program for 15 to 20 years at this point. Um, and I've, I, I have had multiple um, little brothers, and I love it. I love being a mentor. I currently mentor two boys. Two, I have two little brothers. Um, but I've always grappled with this because I'm always wondering, like, how do I help my mentees sort of build the type of lives they want without projecting my own values on them? Right? And how do I help them? By the way, they're all black. Every, all the boys I've mentored so far, all the young men I've mentored so far are black. How, how do I help them navigate a system sort of, not sort of, stacked against them and in which, I, frankly, I've been part of the problem, you know? And how do I help them flourish without acting like they need to be rescued? So how do I mentor young men of color without becoming the white savior myself? And you know, it's tough. I think about it because mentoring is one of the things in my life that I value the most. I love every moment of it. I love how it makes me feel. I love when I can see, uh, no matter how indirect, some impact on the kids I'm working with. But I got to always remember the societal structures in which this mentoring takes place, right? I need to remember, I am not a man mentoring a young black man. I am a white man mentoring a young black man. And even just saying that sentence, now that I say it out loud, probably helps because that'll help prompt me to see it from all the angles that I must see. Uh, and I, I gotta, you know, to ignore all this and to project on my mentees, would that would be to keep the overall system intact. So it's, I think it's through conversations and I think it's through self-realization that 
I'm not the white savior um, coming in to save anybody. I'm frankly a white man who has a great relationship with a couple of young black men and we like to have fun together and if they have questions about life, I try to answer them, but I must always come at it as understanding the societal structure that we are within. So anti-blackness and how it's sort of embedded in the socialization of white people is really important and D'Angelo goes into way more detail than I just provided, but I thought it was something that we should touch upon. Uh, and there's another thing that I thought I want to bring up that she, um, she calls white fragility a form of bullying. So remember, this whole book has been about our white fragility, which is, you know, the fact we can't talk about racism. If you say we have any type of racist thinking or action, then we, we, we think that means you're calling us a bad person. We think you can't be racist without being a bad person. So we get defensive. We shut you down. We won't listen. And all of this reaction and all this white fragility and the white solidarity where if there's no minorities around, white people stick together. And if someone makes a racist joke, we let it slide because we, we don't want to interrupt the white solidarity. All of these different aspects of white fragility, D'Angelo says they're actually a form of bullying. Our white fragility keeps us from ever diving into uncomfortable discussions on race. And she says it's funny that she's using the word fragility because the effects of white fragility are not at all fragile. The way we retreat to white solidarity, the way we get quiet or defensive in the face of any personal discomfort, these are responses. They, they stem from historical and institutional power that we white people have. And, you know, she, she talks about sometimes white people will even cry as they are feeling racial discomfort. You know, I'm in a big conversation, there's black people in the conversation, there's Latino people in the conversation. Somebody accuses me of saying something that might have been racist and instead of listening and asking questions, I get so distraught and so defensive that I actually start crying. And she says, this is just another mechanism that brings all the attention in the conversation back to the white person, makes the white person look like the victim and just keeps systemic racism alive. It was so interesting to think about when we, when, we, when we retreat into white fragility, in many ways, as she says, we're actually bullying people of color because we're not letting the conversation go anywhere. We are controlling everything. Basically, we make it so miserable for others to challenge our racial thinking that they never want to do it again. We as a race, we bully ourselves out of any true reflection. Quote, white fragility keeps people of color in line and in their place. In this way, it is a powerful form of white racial control, end quote. And here's a moment where I want to read a quick passage from page 113 in the book. And this is D'Angelo talking about workshops she has run. Uh, quote, in my workshops, I often ask people of color, how often have you given white people feedback on our unaware yet inevitable racism? And how often has that gone well for you? Eye rolling, head shaking, and outright laughter follow, along with the consensus of rarely, if ever. I then ask, what would it be like if you could simply give us feedback, have us graciously receive it, reflect, and work to change the behavior? Recently, a man of color sighed and said, it would be revolutionary. Ah, love that, love that paragraph. If white people could just get feedback on racism, listen intently, reflect, 
and not get defensive, this man said that would be revolutionary. And to be, to be honest with you, I think, I'm hoping, I, I, I'm an optimist, I'm hoping that this is one impact of the current moment that can change. I'm hoping that this is the moment where a large number, a large percentage of white people realize we are part of the problem and we need to listen and we need to ask questions and we need to show gratitude when we're given feedback and we need to be comfortable feeling uncomfortable. I really hope that that comes to fruition because that would be one way to get over this white fragility as actually a bullying mechanism to keep systemic racism in place. We need to accept feedback and that, as the man said, would be revolutionary. All right, now I'm gonna focus on a specific chapter, chapter 10, White Fragility and the Rules of Engagement. All right, so for many of us uh, throughout our lives, giving and receiving feedback on racism has been hard, okay? So as white people, for us to give feedback on racism to others has been hard, and for, for us to receive it has been really hard. And I think so many of us now are more ready for this. I know I am, I know I am. For me, this is kinda new. I definitely, I personally definitely thought that being non-racist and living a life that included diversity was good enough. I thought that was my role. I am not racist and I live a life that includes a good amount of diversity and that's how I fit into the system and that's how I hope to make the system better. I now understand that is not enough. I need to be anti-racist and I need to point out racism whenever I see it. I also need to seek out feedback on my own socialized racism whenever possible. This book, as you can tell, has, made, has helped me see it more clearly and therefore I see racism far more often. I am seeing racism more in the last three weeks than I was at any time in my life before that. And that's not because it's suddenly more prevalent, it's actually because now I understand what I should be looking for. So what does this mean to us? Well, first, anytime I get racial feedback from someone else, I should be appreciative. Even if, even if one of my black friends says, Tim, that was a little racist, I, I have to be appreciative. I can't get defensive. It's not my job to explain myself. And I need to remember, if that comment makes me uncomfortable, that's a good thing. That's a good thing, I'm uncomfortable. I need to be uncomfortable. I need to live in that space. I need to listen. And D'Angelo says her, 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 her own rule for herself is no matter what racial feedback she gets, once she accepts it, she says simply, thank you. Thank you. And that's just so different than a few months ago. If one of my black friends had said, hey man, that's a little racist to me a few months ago, I know I would have tried to explain myself. I know I would have tried to say why what they said wasn't true. And I'm, I'm done. Now I would just say, I'll reflect on that. I'll definitely reflect on that. And thank you for telling me. And, okay, the, on the opposite, anytime I see racism moving forward, I need to point it out. I need to completely break free from white solidarity. I should remember when I do point out racism, racism that I will be the one to be made, I'll be the one that's uncomfortable after I give the feedback. That's what white fragility does. When we break from white solidarity, we're the ones, the one that breaks from it and points out racism, we're the ones 
that feel uncomfortable. But again, that's good. Discomfort is good. Black people, people of color have been uncomfortable for centuries. It's time for me to be uncomfortable. So I need to find those moments of white solidarity. I need to point them out, call out the racism that's taking place. And if I feel uncomfortable when I do so, I need to be happy that I'm feeling uncomfortable. I need to live in the space of discomfort, but I can't be silent anymore. The world needs white people, especially to start interrupting the system we built by pointing out its inequities on both a micro and macro scale. And it is time, it is time. So I'm gonna read another passage. This is from page 129 that goes along with this thinking that I've just shared. This is from D'Angelo. As I have tried to show throughout this book, white people raised in Western society are conditioned into a white supremacist worldview because it is the bedrock of our society and its institutions. Regardless of whether a parent told you that everyone was equal, or the poster in the hall of your white suburban school proclaimed the value of diversity, or you have traveled abroad, or you have people of color in your workplace or family, the ubiquitous socializing power of white supremacy cannot be avoided. The messages circulate 24-7 and have little or nothing to do with intentions, awareness, or agreement. Entering the conversation with this understanding is freeing because it allows us to focus on how rather than if our racism is manifest. When we move beyond the good-bad binary, we can become eager to identify our racist patterns because interrupting those patterns becomes more important than managing how we think we look to others. I'm still reading from D'Angelo. Then she says, I repeat, stopping our racist patterns must be more important than working to convince others that we don't have them. We do have them, and people of color already know we have them. Our efforts to prove otherwise are not at all convincing. An honest accounting of these patterns is no small task given the power of white fragility and white solidarity, but it is necessary. So, end, end quote there, so powerful. We need to identify our own patterns of racism, stop them in their tracks, and when we remember that racism is not yes or no, it's on a continuum. It's on a continuum. When we remember that, we'll, 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 we're, we're sort of freed to then start to break the patterns because now we get out of trying to look not racist and I couldn't be racist because I'm a good person and all those different things. Get rid of it. Get rid of it all. And then we can move forward and start to interrupt racism anytime we can. That brings us to chapter 12. Where do we go from here? This is the last chapter in the book, and it's very powerful. But it's funny because it's not one of those chapters. This was not the kind of book where I could have read the first three or four chapters and then skipped to the where do we go from here because every one of the chapters plays a tiny role or plays an important role, actually, in putting together this big puzzle of where do we go from here. Every part along the journey has mattered. And one thing that D'Angelo says is we, we need to look at assumptions. We need to look overall at assumptions. There are so many assumptions about racism that we make as white people that are just flat out wrong. And we as white people completely underestimate the system of racism that we have built. And the system is built on these assumptions. So to crumble the system, first we've got to crumble the assumptions. So D'Angelo provides a really long list of classic assumptions 
that we live that we live on, and it's amazing when you read them because we've heard them all. We've in in our lives, we've all these assumptions have come to the surface plenty of times. Here are the ones that stood out to me, and all of these are quotes directly from the book. One assumption: racism is simply personal prejudice. Another assumption: racism can only be intentional. My not having intended racism cancels out the impact of my behavior. Another assumption. If I am a good person, I can't be racist. Another assumption. If you knew me or understood me, you would know I can't be racist. Another assumption. Racism is conscious bias. I have none, so I am not racist. Another assumption. I have friends of color, so I can't be racist. I'm telling you, I've heard, and I know so many of you, we've heard all of these assumptions spoken out loud so many times in our lives. I know I have. And I've spoken some of them myself along the way. I thought they were good assumptions. I thought they were good assumptions. And now I realize I was fooled. I was socialized to think these were good assumptions because these very assumptions upheld the system of white supremacy, of systemic racism, of all of the above. I was fooled. So D'Angelo says, as white people, we need to change our assumptions. We must start to come at the experience of racism, of, of race, from a whole new place. Here are some of the new assumptions she says we must put in place. First, quote, being good or bad is not relevant, unquote, to this work. So just, she, that's the first one. She says, take that out of it. Being good or bad is not relevant to this work. Another new assumption that we need to have. Racism is inevitable and unavoidable due to socialization in our society. How big, how, how much of a game changer is that? If we just from here on out assume racism is inevitable and unavoidable due to socialization in our society, that's a game changer. If, we, if, if that's an assumption, that will help us change so much about the world and so much about the systems in place. Just so much changes if we start assuming that it's inevitable and unavoidable. I'll go through some others. As a white person, I have blind spots on racism. As a white person, I have unconscious bias that I'm not always aware of. As a white person, I need feedback on my racism. I need to remember that I am a white man and this impacts everything. I must be comfortable being uncomfortable as I progress with my racial thinking. I must point out racism whenever I can identify it, both my own and others. Quote, nothing can exempt me from the forces of racism. End quote. Nothing. Imagine that. Imagine if that's what we assumed. Nothing can exempt me from the forces of racism. I just think that is so powerful. And if we start to adopt these assumptions, if we, if we can say, the, if we just, if we, if we accept these, you know, that racism is inevitable and unavoidable, nothing can exempt us from it. That as a white person, I have blind spots, I have unconscious bias, I need feedback on racism. That racism impacts everything. You know, if we just start to assume all of those things, rather than our old assumptions, then we're going to be far more likely to not get defensive in talks on race, to be vulnerable, to be ready to grow, to improve our worldview, increase our worldview, and to interrupt privilege-protecting comfort. We need to interrupt that. And I just found that to be so powerful. So now I'm going to read a couple more things from the book, and this is from towards the very end. And this one is about a page and a half. This is D'Angelo. 
writing directly, quote, when white people ask me what to do about racism and white fragility, the first thing I ask is, what has enabled you to be a full, educated, professional adult and not know what to do about racism? It is a sincere question. How have we managed not to know when the information is all around us? When people of color have been telling us for years. If we take that question seriously and map out all the ways we have come to not know what to do, we will have our guide before us. For example, if my answer is that I was not educated about racism, I know that I will have to get educated. If my answer is that I don't know people of color, I will need to build relationships. If it is because there are no people of color in my environment, I will need to get out of my comfort zone and change my environment. Addressing racism is not without effort. Next, I say to them, do whatever it takes for you to internalize the above assumptions. I believe that if we white people were truly coming from these assumptions, not only would our interpersonal relationships change, but so would our institutions. Our institutions would change because we would see to it that they did, but we simply cannot end racism from the current paradigm. The final advice I offer is this, take the initiative and find out on your own. To break with the conditioning of whiteness, the conditioning that makes us apathetic about racism and prevents us from developing the skills we need to interrupt it, white people need to find out for themselves what they can do. There is so much excellent advice out there today written by both people of color and white people. Search it out, break with the, break with the apathy of whiteness and demonstrate that you care enough to put in the effort. As an analogy, imagine you go to the doctor who tells you that you have an acoustic neuroma just as she is about to explain what that is and what your options are, she gets an emergency call and must rush off, abruptly ending your visit. What would you do? You would very likely go home, get on the internet, and read everything you could find on the subject. You might join a discussion group with people who had experience with the condition. Even if the doctor wasn't called away and she explained the condition and gave you some advice, you would probably still go home and do the research so that you would have more than one opinion on such an important, perhaps even a life and death condition. Bottom line, you would care enough to get informed. So consider racism a matter of life and death, as it is for people of color, and do your homework." End quote. Just found that to be obviously so powerful. We all need to think of what our next steps are, what our next steps are. And we can't be lazy. And, and the good news is, by not being lazy, by running through walls to learn more about this, to figure out what to do about this. Now we're overcoming some of the socialization of our own whiteness, and we're fighting back against that socialization. And lastly, for reading, I'm gonna read from right from the very end. I thought this was a great summary. Quote, we can interrupt our white fragility and build our capacity to sustain cross-racial honesty by being, willing, by being willing to tolerate the discomfort associated with an honest appraisal and discussion of our internalized superiority and racial privilege. We can challenge our own racial reality by acknowledging ourselves as racial beings with a particular and limited perspective on race. We can attempt to understand the racial realities of people of color through authentic interaction rather than through the media or through unequal relationships. We can take action to address our own racism the racism of other whites, and the racism embedded in our institutions. All of these efforts will require that we continually challenge our own socialization and investments in racism and the misinformation we have learned about people of color. 
We can educate ourselves about the history of race relations in our country. We can follow the leadership on anti-racism from people of color and work to build authentic cross-racial relationships. We can get involved in organizations working for racial justice. And most important, we must break the silence about race and racism with other white people. Again, just so much for us to think about and so much for us to do. But if you're like me, it just feels so good to, to know that there are things we can do, both on our own micro level and on the larger macro level. D'Angelo finishes kind of coming straight at us and, and she talks about interrupting racism takes much more than being nice. She says, too often white people, they just think if they're just kind to people of color, if, if they smile at them, and if they have some friendships here and there with people of color, and, and if we're just friendly in general to them, all that comes of all that is that the system of racial inequality persists. Being nice is a good thing, without a doubt, but to overcome the systematic racism of our society, we need much more. Three quick quotes, she says, right towards the end. Interrupting racism takes courage and intentionality. It is a messy, lifelong process. It is also deeply compelling and transformative. I love all of that. I love all of those three sentences. I want to have courage and I want to act with intentionality. I don't care that this is going to be messy. I don't care that it's a lifelong process that I'm, I'm, I'm really just hitting a new stride on right now. And I know that it's going to be deeply compelling and it's going to be transformative. Just reading this book and talking about it on this podcast has been all of those things. So my big takeaways, and frankly, my big takeaways in this episode are really going to oversimplify the last third of this book. But these are what I want to remember most from this section now that I have dove back in. And, and by the way, we all have our own next steps. So these are very personal to me. And yours, as D'Angelo described in that passage I read, they might be different. But I have three things that I'm going to remember. First, I need to remember at all times that I am a white man, not just an individual. I have been socialized as a white man. I understand now. I understand, or I'm beginning to understand, all that this means. And I need to remember that white, white fragility, what, I need to remember, excuse me, what white fragility is, and I need to be on the lookout for it anytime my own white fragility rears its head. And so that's what I'm talking about in the beginning of this episode. My white fragility might make me tired in the next few weeks from focusing on this so much. And I might just decide I need a break from this, and I can't do it. That's my own white fragility. I need to say, nope, I don't get a break. I need to keep reading. I need to keep learning. I need to keep acting. So that was my first takeaway. Second, as a white person, I must dedicate myself to this work and stay in this thinking. This is not someone else's job. It is my job as a white man. I need to keep reading. I need to keep listening. I need to keep talking. I need to be marching. I need to be acting. I need to be donating. I need to be, maybe this is most important for me, I need to be talking to my kids about this stuff. You know, I had a really great moment at work this week where I led what was called a group processing session. And I had 11 students and 11 staff on a Zoom call. And I was the facilitator. And I took us through an exercise that was shared with me. Uh, it was a group processing session. So we talked about how are we processing this moment in history and all of the systemic racism and the injustices that we're seeing. And I absolutely enjoyed and valued and 
I just loved it. I loved leading that group processing session. And if you had told me a month ago in the middle of a pandemic that I'd be, re that I'd be leading a group processing session with students on, and staff on racism, I would have said, what are you talking about? And now I want to go back to that guy and say, why aren't you doing this every month? Why aren't we focusing on this all the time? That's the only way to undo the problem is to be focused on this all the time. And I didn't think that way before, but I'm going to think that way moving forward. There is work to be done and I need to be doing that work. That is another next step for me. And third from this final section is, and this might be just it's continually reiterated, I can never miss a chance to interrupt racism, be it in my mind or be it in front of me. I need to say something. I need to point it out. I need to totally blow up white solidarity. I need to break the silence. If I'm there and white solidarity rears its head, I need to be the one that blows it up. And I can't worry about my own comfort. In fact, if, if in a moment like this I'm comfortable, then I'm not doing enough. I need to say something and stop it. And then when I feel uncomfortable, instead of trying to get back to a world of comfort, I need to say, nope, I'm feeling uncomfortable. That means I'm doing the right thing. White people, we need to interrupt individual and systemic racism every chance we get. And perhaps that is my biggest takeaway from White Fragility. So that is White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. I so appreciate you taking this journey with me. I hope next week you will continue on this journey with me when we look at a wonderful book by an incredible author, Ta-Nehisi Coates. I thank you so much for listening. I hope at some point you'll check out www.npteducation.com to see the cool content we have there. And most importantly, I hope you all have a wonderful week. Keep interrupting racism every single chance you get. Have a great week, everyone, and thanks for joining us on the Teacher's Cup of Coffee.